This morning we're going to read from Holy Scripture in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. And we will begin reading with verse 57 and read to the end of the chapter. Our interest in this short section of Scripture is that we have here in this short section three examples of the importance of the subject of the Lord's Day that we consider this morning about vows or oaths. And there are three here. You will see that Jesus is convicted partly by the testimony of perjury, lying witnesses. Then Jesus himself is put under oath. And finally, the denial of Peter occurred with oaths. So let's read this section. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled, but Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him, and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. 
Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. We read that far in God's holy word. This morning, we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 37. May we then swear religiously by the name of God. Yes. Either when the magistrates demanded of the subjects, or when necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. For such an oath is founded on God's word, and therefore was justly used by the saints both in the Old and New Testament. May we also swear by saints or any other creatures? No. For a lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart, that he will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely, which honor is due to no creature. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps you look at this Lord's Day and think it strange, perhaps out of place, or perhaps not all that necessary. The subject concerns oaths and vows, those by where we swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God. It concerns the vows that we make. It concerns the vows that we make at crucial junctures in our life and concerns the very speech out of our mouth, and yet perhaps you think it strange or unwarranted, number one, because, well, why does this commandment of all the commandments in their treatment of the Heidelberg Catechism receive two Lord's Days when all the others receive only one? Doesn't that give this commandment more attention than it really deserves, at least in relationship to the others? And the answer is no. You will recall even the previous Lord's Day reminded us of the seriousness of this particular commandment, that God considers this so heinous a sin there is no sin greater or more provoking to God. And if we would question that, using all sorts of human arguments, how could there be a sin more provoking than another? It simply shows how little we actually think of the truth and of our God as truth. Number two, perhaps we look at this commandment and we say, well, it's all about lying, not telling the truth. Wouldn't it be better 
to treat this under the ninth commandment. And certainly it could be treated there. But our fathers very rightly treat it here to point out that lying, whether we lie under oath or whether we just simply lie, is more serious than we imagine. Because all lies, whether we technically violate an oath or a vow, is a violation not only of the ninth, but also this, the third commandment, because they all in one way or another involve the name of God. And that brings us to a reminder that emphasizes both, which is, this goes to show you the truth of what we saw last week. This commandment indeed covers all of our life. Sure, narrowly, we could look at it and say, you know, it only involves really two things. One, whether or not we use curse words. Certain words that are forbidden and banned, that's what this commandment is all about. Or even if we extend it to the oath and the vow and say, well, I understand how it treats that. But as regards the rest of my life and the rest of what I say or do, it really doesn't bear on that. And that's not true at all. Both the Heidelberg Catechism and Scripture make clear that this commandment is about your entire life. We saw that last week. Not just in worship, but the other six days of week in your work. It even governs your life in the home because that, after all, is about a vow too. Your relationship to your children. So, with me this morning, consider this Lord's Day under the theme that's raised in the Lord's Day itself when it asks the question, may we then swear religiously by the name of God? Swearing religiously is our theme this morning, and we're going to look at the activity, then the necessity, and finally the possibility of that. The activity of swearing religiously, it is true, and it must be understood that Our fathers, when they're talking about swearing religiously, are talking very narrowly about two things. What in Scripture is called the oath and what in Scripture is called the vow. It's primarily about the oath, which is evident from that word being used here in the Lord's Day itself as a replacement for swearing religiously. Swearing religiously is called a lawful oath. But we may rightly include vows. We ourselves see little difference between them. When you get married, you take an oath. We call that a vow. And when you're in a court of law, you take an oath that may be considered a vow. Importantly, both of those terms are used in Scripture, although the word vow is normally associated with making a promise. An oath has to do with telling the truth. A vow has to do with promising to do something. But essentially, there's no different. They're basically both treated here. But let's notice something by that term, swearing religiously, brings up something that's important which is swearing religiously isn't 
something limited to a certain activity, but it governs all of your religious life. Ask yourself the question, is there anything in your life that is not or should not be religious? And by implication, that means that what you do religiously, what concerns your religion, whether you're practicing your religion in church or you're living out your religion in a court of law, it all involves this commandment. And I just want to impress that upon you this morning before we move on to talk more specifically. And I want to do that by showing that our Heidelberg Catechism is not alone here. This is the Reformed faith. Now certainly the Heidelberg Catechism has this Lord's Day here for a particular reason, and it's one that's polemical. We have noted from time to time as we've gone through the Heidelberg Catechism that it is polemical. In other words, it treats the truth not only positively, but sets it forth positively over against known errors, especially when it was written. And as we've seen, errors that continue and have even developed. For example, at critical junctures, it shows the difference between the Calvinistic Reformed faith and Lutheranism, which is a branch of Protestantism that came from Martin Luther. There are differences, and they're pointed out. The Heidelberg Catechism is Calvinistic. It follows the theology and teaching of John Calvin, believing it to be faithful to Scripture. And that's why this Lord's Day is here, too, in part, because there was another branch of Protestantism that broke off during the time of the Reformation known as the Anabaptists, and we have noticed where there's polemic against them, especially with regard to infant baptism. Well, here again is where their particular theology and idea comes out too. They had a view of the world and that is that the world is essentially evil and wicked. Not necessarily because of sin, but because of substance, because it's material. And the only true reality, the only good reality, that which we may associate and be involved in, is really only the spiritual. And so the calling of the individual child of God is to separate himself from the world in a material sense in a very real material sense. The child of God should not be involved in politics, should not use the most modern conveniences, and related to that was a view also that a child of God may not swear an oath, especially when it is demanded of the authorities. So our fathers are addressing that error. But don't forget underlying it is a view that this commandment covers the entirety of the Christian life. And I want to point that out to you by reading another Protestant creed, that of Reformed Presbyterianism, known as the Westminster Confession. And it's lengthy, but please listen to its explanation of what this commandment covers, its length and its breadth, and you will see 
how comprehensive it really is. And notice, too, that this confession also includes under this commandment the vow or the oath. What is required in the third commandment, the Westminster Catechism asks. The third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, they even include lots, his works, and whatever soever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing, by an holy profession, an answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. That's what's required. What sins are forbidden in the third commandment? Now notice again how comprehensive it is. The sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name as is required. Notice there's a required use of God's name. And the abuse of it, notice that word abuse, we took note of the same use of that word in the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is not alone in attributing that word abuse, first of all, to the name of God. The abuse of it in an ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning, or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works, by blasphemy, and now notice, perjury, that's the subject of this Lord's Day. All sinful cursings, again notice, oaths, vows, and lots. Violating our oaths and vows, if lawful. Notice, it notices a lawful oath or vow, and violating it violates this commandment, just not the ninth. And fulfilling them, if of things unlawful. In other words, there's unlawful vills, and you shouldn't fulfill those unlawful vows. Murmuring and quarreling at, curiously prying into and misapplying God's decrees and providences, misinterpreting, misapplying, or in any way perverting the word. We mentioned that last time. Misinterpreting, misapplying, curiously prying into the matters of God's Word, or any part of it, to profane jests, curious or unprofitable questions, vain janglings, or the maintaining of false doctrines, abusing it, there's that word again, abusing it, the creatures, or anything contained under the name of God, to charms, or sinful lusts and practices, the maligning, scorning, reviling, or any wise opposing of God's truth, grace, and ways, making profession of religion in hypocrisy. Notice that. To profess one's religion hypocritically is a violating of one's vow. Or for sinister ends, being ashamed of it or ashamed to it 
or ashamed to it by unconformable, unwise, unfruitful, and offensive walking or backsliding from it. It's pretty comprehensive. There's a third question and answer about as lengthy on the same commandment. So notice the length and breadth of this. Our fathers are justified in taking two Lord's Days on this particular issue. Now, with regard to the oath and vow itself, notice our fathers set forth that there are two requirements when it comes to taking a vow or an oath. They're setting forth here what's a legal law or legal oath or a vow. There's unlawful ones, as the Westminster itself points out. There are oaths that are demanded and vows that are required that are unlawful, that a child of God shouldn't enter into or fulfill. Certainly laws and oaths that require someone to break God's law. Then such oaths should be responded to. We must obey God rather than men. We cannot take that kind of oath or law. And if, or vow, and if you ask really what are the two essentials, the Catechism lists two, which is first, we may only take an oath or take a vow in the name of God. Negatively, we may not take an oath by any other name than God's name. We may not swear by saints or any other creatures, says the Heidelberg Catechism. And that's always been common. That was common in Jesus' day. Jesus himself comments on it. Although we may not always understand what he was talking about. But the Pharisees, those self-righteous keepers of the law, as they supposed, were also liars who violated vows and oaths and knew full well they were doing it. So they had an end around And their end around is that they would swear on all sorts of other things than the name of God. They would swear on the temple and the gold of the temple and all kinds of things because, well, they were holy and sanctified and people were dumb enough to accept those kinds of oaths. But they were wicked. They were ungodly oaths. Number one, because they were not made only in the name of God And number two, they were taken because those who took them knew full well they would violate them. And this gave them an out. They could say, I didn't violate the commandment. I didn't use God's name. We should remember that. We should remember that when we swear an oath, the only lawful oath is using the name of God. And that we're using that name because we're calling God as a witness. And by the way, that's implied too. There are oaths that we could take and have taken and may take that don't exactly invoke the name of God. They don't invoke anything. They're simply promises. They're vows. I promise to do this. I promise to do that. I promise that the information on my taxes is correct. Well, that's an oath. That's a vow. That's why the government will convict you of perjury if you're found lying about it. You may not swear this in the name of God, but yet that's what you've done. 
for the child of God, the point here is that he has an out. It's not that he has an out if the name of God isn't used. No Christian can say, well, I didn't make that promise in the name of God, therefore that, that wasn't lawful and I may break that. No, for a Christian, it means that every time he promises something, every time he promises to do something, that number one, he doesn't promise to do that in any other's name, doesn't make a swearing that if he's telling the truth, he'll die. That, that, that's nothing. But it's always in God's name. Always in God's name. That's what Jesus meant when he said, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Normally, in the course of business, normally among us, and normally before the world, a man's word is his honor. And he doesn't have to use the name of God. His yes is a yes and his no is a no. He doesn't violate that. Why? Because in his mind and heart, he has called God as a witness to what he says. And there's your connection to the Ninth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment, we should see, always involves the name of God. When one breaks that commandment, he breaks the Third Commandment, and vice versa. But the point of our fathers here is that, remember you're using the name of God and why you're using it, and why it invokes using His name in vain. The name of God is used because you're recognizing that God is the only one really who can rightly judge because only God knows the heart. By the way, this always holds true. We may use the fact that we don't know the heart as an excuse not to judge. We're still called to make judgments. We must make judgments. God calls us to do that. Consistories are required to make judgments. The state is required to make judgments. You have to make judgments. Mothers and fathers have to make judgments. And we're fools if we say, well, I don't know the heart. Of course you don't know the heart. No human being knows the heart. That's the point. And that's why the name of God is invoked sometime. And when that's done, you're doing it because only God knows the heart. Yes, very well, that person may be lying, not telling the truth. And we're saying, but we're going to use the name of God to bring us as close to verifying that truth as we possibly can with an understanding that this individual has some concern about the name of God. And even if they don't, God will make it right. The point is that only God can do this. And when we call other creatures to do what only God can do, we dishonor the name of God. And underlying it all is this, that God knows the truth, and God will judge the truth. And God punishes the truth. Someone may escape the judgment of men. Some may escape the punishment of men. And think they have escaped. No, they haven't. The whole point of using the name of God is God doesn't forget. God remembers. God who knows who's committed perjury. God knows who's lying. God knows who's sworn, especially on His name now. Think about that. It's one thing to tell a lie. It's another to tell a lie in the name of God. God remembers. So, first of all, we swear and vow only using the name of God. Nothing else. Nothing else can do what only God can do. Number two, we may only swear 
an oath, take a vow when it's required, when it's necessary. It shouldn't be necessary normally, but there are times when it's necessary. Yes, we may swear religiously when the magistrates demand it or when necessity requires it. Notice the two necessities that are brought out. One could probably come up with more. The list isn't exhaustive, but this is pretty close. Number one, when the magistrates demand it of the subjects. Talking about a court of law, talking about the state, talking about police, talking about judges. Talks about standing before a jury, but it's broader than that. You, you will find that this is often done in the state, in the sphere of the state, in the sphere of politics. Even our president may not assume office unless he takes an oath to office. All the Supreme Court judges, every judge in the land takes an oath or a vow of some sort when they enter into office. Our fathers are recognizing that that's lawful. And there's even a certain necessity to it that if there is to be justice, if there is to be a peaceful and good government, if there is to be assurance of any kind among the citizenry, oaths are required. And they're saying now whether you actually swear out a Bible, which isn't done very often anymore today, or the name of God is used, that's an oath, that's a vow. And our fathers are saying, you may do that. You don't do as the Quakers do or the Anabaptists say, I refuse on religious grounds. We may do that. We take those vows. We make those oaths. And by implication, the common thing that's done today where they're regularly violated by politicians and judges and police doesn't matter. But the fact is, it's lawful for you to take an oath and swear an oath when you enter the military or you're a politician, or you stand before the judge or a jury. There's a second necessity that our fathers recognize, and it's very important, and it's important for us to recognize. It's not always recognized, which is when the fidelity and truth, to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. Notice there's two sub-points. To confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. Make a point here because it's not uncommon that this is really denied among us. There's a recognition that, okay, it's good and fine to take an oath before the state, but it should never happen in the church. But that's exactly what it's talking about. It's talking about lawful oaths and vows among us. Remember early on in my ministry, someone objected to that and the preaching of that. And I told them that wasn't the Reformed view. And I quoted Ursinus, one of the writers of the Catechism in that regard, who's very helpful. Because he was admitting, even here, that private oaths are permitted. Private oaths between individuals as well as in the church generally. And his argumentation is there's no such restriction in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture that forbids private oaths. Jesus wasn't talking about that when he said, let your yea be a, swear not at all. That's not what he meant. 
That's the Reformed view of Jesus and James there. He goes on to say, beside that, Scripture records many such oaths. Abraham swore an oath to Abimelech. Abraham, the father of all the faithful. Jesus allowed himself to be put under oath. And there's many, many, many examples in Scripture. And our signer writes, even among individuals, it may be necessary to confirm fidelity and truth. So remember that. Shouldn't be the norm among us. Our yea should be yea and our nay should be may. But sometimes there are situations where elders or individuals or families or a wife or a husband who cannot prove by any tangible proof the truth, the veracity of what they're saying. And there's serious, serious issues at stake. The safety of children or a parent the safety of members of the church, the safety of a neighbor, or even the honor of God's name. And an individual or a consistory or a group has no choice but to ask or require an oath or a vow. Just like the state. And the Reformed faith says that's lawful and good. That's right. And normally those should be received but remember also, and punished, when someone lies under oath or a vow. That's the amazing thing about this particular Lord's Day, is that this whole Lord's Day rests upon the reality that God punishes not simply liars, but especially those who lie and use His name. Now, the amazing thing is that that's done. It's done even in the church. There have been individuals that stood before a consistory and invoked God's name numerous times, swearing they did not do something and were lying and obviously did not know what they did. Or if they did, were so hard-hearted, they didn't realize what God does and what they did to the name of God. Now, about... The necessity of this, there's many things that could be said here. We'll highlight just a couple. Why is an oath necessary? Because our fathers are saying you can only take an oath if it's necessary. Well, notice what our fathers are pointing out. First of all, by even invoking the state, they're saying something about the state. When the state demands it, when the magistrate's referring to the state, when the policeman, when the judge... When it's required before a jury, if it's required to enter the military or any other service of the state, our fathers are saying by that, you are a subject to the state. The state is legitimate and you are a legitimate subject. There's no place for rebellion against the state in Reformed thinking and Reformed understanding and therefore of Scripture too. We need to be reminded of that. It's good to be reminded of that right here. We have an entire article of the Belgian Confession that talks about the state. And this too needs to be emphasized because there is an Anabaptistic, if not a rebellious, notion about this in us too. We may just point the finger out there and say those Anabaptists, how can you imagine how they don't even really submit to the state? We do the same thing. In my ministry I've had numerous discussions arguments and other such things concerning even the involvement of police with regard to a crime. 
I can assure you that if in this congregation you commit a crime, I will inform the police. There, you know my view. It's not an option. It's not left up to me. I am a subject of the state, so are you. You commit a crime, you will be reported. They have that right, they have that duty. That's their calling. The Belgian Confession says God gave us the state in His grace to us. Not to all mankind, but to us. Did it for good. Did it even to restrain the dissoluteness of men. Hold that thought. In other words, they're there for good, even when they don't always do good. They are an honorable institution given by God, a creation institution that's good every bit as marriage. Just because men abuse marriage and marriage is considered a light thing today, just because marriage is being overthrown doesn't mean now that we don't think much of marriage. Remember that. Marriage is a creation institution. It's not a sacred institution of the church. It was given to the world, to men And who would dare come along and say, well, we don't really need that institution. If that was done, we would accuse them of false doctrine. Same thing with the state. So behind this whole article stands the Reformed view of the state and our relationship to the state and that we're subjects to the state. Rebellion against the state is as serious as rebellion in the church. And sad to say, many who learned rebellion against the state learned it first of all in the church and in their home. The second necessity of this, and it's related to the first, is the dissoluteness of men. If you ask, why are oaths necessary and vows necessary? Why is it necessary to speak on these things? The catechism doesn't say, well, they're not necessary. They shouldn't be necessary, and let's just do away with them all. No, no, Jesus, the Scriptures, the Word of God, the Heidelberg Catechism here, deal with the reality that men are dissolute. And not just out there. It's, it's not simply that the attitude of the Lord's Day is this, that us good people here, us righteous people here, are always truth-telling. And in order to protect ourselves, in order to at least make sure we continue to exist, God has allowed us to come under oath with regard to the state and other people so that we can be sure contracts are fulfilled and people fulfill their obligations. It's there all to protect you. No. Mm -mm. No, the idea is we're all dissolute. In us is a rebel. In us is a liar. In us that is someone that will do anything and say anything and even use the name of God to lie, to cheat, to steal, to get what we want. And even regenerated, believing children of God, indeed, whose by the power of the spirits, yea is yea, and their nay is nay, nevertheless have to live in this world too. As God's people and God's children, and God gives this means to us to at least allow us to live here for a time tolerably, Imagine if there was no such commandment or law governing these things that we could say and do whatever we want, that we could invoke the name of God and lie through our teeth and there would be no consequences. There would be nothing but chaos. 
that would be the end not only of human civilization, but certainly life in the church. So it has to do with who we are. It's a recognition of our sin and sinfulness. And especially with regard to Christians who have respect to the name of God, that we're willing to put that name of God on the line not only, but abide by someone's promise with regard to that name. Consider this also too. Why is it necessary? Well, why is the law necessary? The answer is because God is a God of truth. It's always amazing how often we look at God like we look at God. We think God condones lies. God lies. God doesn't think much of lies. Even in the church, one can violate their marriage vows. Get away with it. Nothing happens. That shouldn't happen, not in a Reformed church. Let's, re let's remember that. If you don't think we live by the vow, just consider the vows that you've already taken. All of you who are married have taken a vow. You can argue and wrangle all you want about marriage and what marriage is legal and what marriage isn't legal and divorce, remarriage, and all that. Just take the whole thing and break it right down to the vow and ask, does God allow you to break your vows? Does he or doesn't he? Does God allow a husband and wife to stand before each other, before witnesses, take a vow in his name, and allow them to break that? You know the answer. It's quite simple. No, he doesn't. And if he did, God wouldn't be worth serving. That is no God. But let's remember, that's what we're doing. And you young people, let me give you some advice. You're dating someone? You want to marry them? Ask them one question. When you take your vow, when you vow to love me, when you vow to take me as your husband or wife, is that an unbreakable vow? Or breakable only by death? Do you view that vow as unviolable before God? Yes or no? Now, they may lie to you. That's true. They may be lying even as they talk back to you. But I wouldn't marry anyone who couldn't answer that question the way Heidi Brickhead does. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because then their words mean nothing. That vow means nothing. That vow is only as good as they decide to keep that vow. And that's not what marriage is. Marriage is a vow before God. In the name of the triune God, I will be your husband or I will be your wife. Period. All of you took a vow when you became a member of this church. Every single one of you. It's called the vow of confession of faith. That vow concerns not only your attitude and thinking toward the truth and the Word of God, but submission to church government. Does God allow you to break that vow? May you just say, well, I just don't like what's going on. I just don't like what the church is doing. They're being this and they're being that and all that. No. And by the way, when the young people come to this church, that's one of the greatest interests of the elders. They impress upon them you're taking an oath, a solemn oath, before this church in the name of God. And you're telling us what you believe. And we're going to take your word for it. Yes, we're going to ask a few questions to see if we can make sure. But we can't make sure. We don't know the heart. We're taking your word for it. And that you'll submit to church government too. 
And I have no doubt there's a lot of young people that when they take that vow, mean it, but yet, you know what happens? When they misbehave and they live in sin and the elders come knocking and say, young man or woman, you have to change your ways. I'm out of here. I'm not listening to you people. They don't come out and say that usually, but that's what they do, and I'm out of here. Do you think God allows that to happen? Now, there's not much the elders can do about it. Here's your papers. You may leave. But we're going to remind you of something. You took a vow. You took an oath. And it's just as solemn. It's just as true. It's just as important as your marriage vows, which sad thing is the person won't take those probably seriously either. Baptism, more vows. Do we see, beloved, that for good reason, for right reasons, especially with very important things, exactly because of the dissoluteness of men, God places us under a vow. It's necessary. God wouldn't allow it and God wouldn't require it if it wasn't. And if you're a child of God, that should mean something. You indeed might be put in a position where maybe you believe the elders were wrong, or the husband was wrong, or the wife was wrong, or my children were wrong, or whatever, and want to use it as an excuse to violate your vow. And if you're a child of God, there'll be something that says, no. Ministers have violated their vows. Husbands, wives, children, we all have done it. And there's something terribly, terribly wrong. Now, why is that? What is it that ought to pull a child of God up short? Where he will keep his vow even to great hurt. There have been Christians, there have been fathers and mothers and children and all kinds of Christians and all different ways and reasons that have lost virtually everything simply because they made a promise. And you say, what, what motivates them? What makes that possible? Well, what does it? What, what is it that is going to stop you short when you say, I'm out of this marriage and I'm going to find another marriage partner? Or I'm out of this church. I'm not submitting. What's the one thing that will pull you up short? If you're a child of God, don't you know? It's that God, God has never been unfaithful to you. We're unfaithful to Him. We violate His law. We lie about Him. We bury His name in the mud. But God promised. Don't forget, God promises two things. Number one, He will punish the liar and the oathbreaker. They don't go unpunished. God doesn't just turn a blind eye to that. And if you doubt me on that, simply again look at Christ. Christ went to the cross because he was falsely charged by oath breakers, and the Pharisees and Sadducees knew it. And then they accused him of blasphemy when under oath he said he indeed was the Christ. In other words, for telling the truth. And why did he do that? Why is that a part of the death of Christ? Why does that belong to the history? That's God reminding you of the kind of people Jesus died for. Oh, he didn't die for all oath breakers. There will be perjurers and liars 
who perjured and lied right in the church, in their marriage, in Christian marriages so-called, that will pay the ultimate punishment for that. Might have fooled all kinds of people, but not God who sees the heart. But indeed, Jesus did pay for the sins of many liars and oath-breakers. And that's the thing that will pull you short. I say, how in the world can I lie against this Christ, against this God, against this one? And that has power. You see, the blood of Christ has power. Believe in that blood of Christ, and your lying and deceitful ways are forgiven, but they won't continue either. That's impossible. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee that Thou art the truth, and Thou hast sent the truth to suffer and die for us. Thy Word. So may we be people of the Word who heed Thy Word, who listen to Thy Word, who use Thy Word carefully, including our yea and our nay, and that which is lived under oath and especially when we use thy name in our vows. O Lord, forgive us our sinfulness, our lying and deceitful ways. Help us to be faithful, to be faithful to our vows, to thy name, to the Savior who has died for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.